ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger. And Sarah, a special guest. A very special guest today, the brisket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My childcare had some car troubles. And so uh, I'm on brisket duty right now. So if you hear, uh, he has many opinions about what we're going to talk about today. And uh, our audience may hear some of them. Well, I look forward to hearing from the brisket, uh, I we have bet we have had entirely too little content, brisket content on this podcast, and so I'm glad we're going to do something about it today. Yeah, good. Well, we've got uh, a few things to talk about. Uh, listeners may have noticed that I was not here for Tuesday's podcast. I was or Monday's podcast. I was in Southern California, and Sarah, we were celebrating my 25th anniversary. Nancy and I were celebrating our 25th anniversary, and we did it in the most us way possible, which is we scheduled uh, kind of at the last minute to go to Southern California to our favorite hotel in Orange County and Laguna Niguel, California. And only the night before did we realize, wait a minute, California's pretty locked down. (laughs) Wrong state. Should have gone to Texas. (laughs) Texas, Florida. I mean, so many options like no indoor dining, for example. Um, but hey, we adapted, we overcame. Room service was amazing. And we ended up having a great time. And the podcast without me was awesome. So win-win. Win-win. Uh, speaking of uh, places you went, last night, I'm minding my own business, you know, watching some Shit's Creek uh, on my <laughs> phone in bed. And the internet is blowing up because David French has joined a clubhouse room called David French Based or Cringe. We need to start from the beginning. Um, What is clubhouse? (laughs) What does based or cringe mean? And why you were there? Just just start. How did did this come about? What happened last night? (laughs) Yeah. So clubhouse, for those who don't know, is a new social media app, which is essentially like, this is going to make it sound like the last place you want to be, but imagine being able to drop in on a conference call. (laughs) Uh, So essentially what happens is people host clubhouse rooms and that are moderated and you might have, uh, say three or four or five people who have a, are hosting a discussion with each other. And then they can let other people comment, let other people, um, participate. I guess the best way of describing it would be, you know, uh, imagine like online panel discussions, live online panel discussions. And they're all, I mean, all kinds of different topics, all kinds of different people do it. Uh, it's highly interactive. You kind of never know what you're going to get. I haven't really done it much, but I'm sitting there at dinner and I got a, um, my phone, I got a ping on my phone from a friend, a mutual friend who shall remain nameless at their request, who said, you are the subject of a clubhouse room right now. I said, oh, really? And so I looked at it and it said the title of it was David French based or cringe. Now, Sarah, do you know what based means? I do now that I've looked it up on Urban Dictionary. (laughs) I I had to do the same thing. I had, I knew what cringe meant, but it's sort of, yeah. Cringeworthy. Like, right. 
Yeah. And so based is kind of like the opposite of cringe. Um, so it's a compliment. Um, <laughs> so I would dictionary, say, though, it's like a it's a little backhanded. It's like you have an unpopular opinion, but you don't care what other people think. Right. Right. I don't really understand how to use it in a sentence, but that's what I learned from Urban Dictionary. Yeah. And uh, so somebody said, uh, that person said, oh, look, you're being talked about. Maybe, and I said, maybe I should join that. And it was funny because um, I had no idea who started it. I had no idea who was hosting it. But I turn on, I, I uh, uh, open the P Clubhouse app and pop myself straight into this whole Clubhouse room which I immediately find out is basically a whole bunch of people who have decided before the whole thing started that I'm cringe, Sarah, and <laughs> that they were, I, I literally walked in, it was so funny, on the middle of somebody, or online walked in, in the middle of somebody just trashing me. I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's a little weird to have a whole room set up where people who don't know each other sit around and talk about how much they hate someone. Um, but <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. one thing like when it's a character on a TV show or something, I guess, but it's another, like, this is a real person. I did look up the moderator, by the way. Um, here's her Twitter profile. Uh, Matilda ZH Imperial Nymphet philosopher. And here's her description <laughs> of herself. In valor, there is hope. Tacitus. Heidegger's ride or die fangirl. Pro-intellectualism, bylines, various places, anarcho-imperial monarchist, Nabokovian, <laughs> I don't, ascete? I don't, I mean, her whole Twitter feed is about how smart she is and how no one else is as smart as she is. And, and it's lots of like, I've read Heidegger, um, <laughs> which, you know, and, and lots of Straussian stuff. Um, it does remind me, uh, I don't know this person, um, but based on what she's saying, it reminds me a little of that, a fish called Wanda line where, uh, Wanda, I'm sorry, Wanda's the fish, um, <laughs> where Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, calls her brother an ape and he says, can apes read Nietzsche? And she says, yes, they just don't understand what it means. <laughs> okay so you enter this room people are trashing you yep um i joined much later because uh the brisket did not have a great night last night which um and by the way the brisket is very base he has lots of opinions and he does not care what we think of his opinions oh um, i know i know i can i uh, listeners i am i'm watching the brisket right now and he is reaching for the microphone <laughs> wanting to weigh in on David French based or cringe. Uh, so I enter and you are talking to an HLS 2022. So a 2L, I guess. Uh huh. Um, who is uh, basically yelling at you that blasphemy should be criminalized under the original <laughs> understanding of the First Amendment and that all historians agree that blasphemy can be criminalized under the First Amendment and that your understanding of the First Amendment is not based on anything originalist or textualist. Um, however, he didn't say it like that. Instead, he kept quoting, <laughs> I, 
I mean, it was very, it was actually very 1L. Like, you know, we make fun of 1Ls because like they learn a little bit of knowledge and it gets super dangerous. And it's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting of the guy in the bar who's like uh, plagiarizing, you know, that book to to will. So that's a lot of what that felt like to me. But it was really interesting to hear you engage because I, um, you're a wonderful podcast co-host. But man, I had no idea your patience level. You were so patient and so, I don't know, just kind. Well, what happened? So for listeners who don't know, because, um, you know, we everybody sort of has different sort of platforms of choice that they listen to, that they follow. But there's kind of a subculture online of, of people who really hate me. And... You know, it's it's really interesting when that something like that exists because what you find out is there's sort of like a lot of um, uh, shall we say fake news about you that circulates, and so I was gonna say I actually am not convinced that they know anything about you in particular or what you believe or anything else. You stand for something that they don't like, right? And exactly. so they have you are a a um, vehicle that they have poured a bunch of stuff into. Yes, exactly. And so when I joined, uh, they immediately, they promoted me to whatever participant or whatever it is, panelist. And they Mind said, you, there Why was are a you- congressman, a former congressman. Uh, there were like a thousand people watching that they weren't promoting to say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was funny, so what happened, so I joined and there's just a very few people on it. Um, and I said, Hey, I just want to know: Am I being fairly characterized or being strawmanned? And so, hey, if you've got any questions about what I actually think or what I actually believe, here I am. Let's have a conversation. And immediately, Twitter starts to light up, and then that's when all of these other folks learn. Like Congressman Meyer joins, Justin Amash joins, a whole bunch of journalists join. And so there's this kind of running commentary simultaneously on Twitter as I'm talking. And it was really interesting to me walking through it was, and it really, it, it began with a really angry sort of hurling a lot of accusations at me, discussion about abortion, um, then turned into a big discussion about big tech, and it kind of never really left that. And if there's one way that I could sort of sum it up, Sarah, is that this was mainly a bunch of people pretty much on the far right who believe that all is lost, that the the world is coming to an end, that uh, social conservatism or Christianity is in sort of this permanent state of decline, that the Mer- America is coming apart at the seams, everything is worse than it's ever been, and that and what's fascinating is that almost all of them that I could like go and read their bios and stuff, assuming they're telling the truth about their who right. they are, which, you know, I don't know, but uh, they're all in their 20s. Yeah. Which is yeah, fascinating because they, they have, there is no sense of history in that way, of lived history. Exactly. At all. At all. And and many of them have completely imbibed what I, I've started to call in talking with some folks about sort of this far right mentality decline porn. It is, everything is terrible. Everything is getting worse. Things are going to get worse. And therefore that requires extremely drastic measures governmentally to address 
the decline of the United States of America. And one of the things that I tried to do, and I tried to do it right from the get-go, is say, hey, wait, hold on. There's, we have problems in this country. There's no question about it. But if you're going to rewind the clock 30 years, by multiple metrics, things were much worse in many ways than they are now. Abortion rates were higher. Divorce rates were higher. Crime, violent crime rates were higher. Um, Out-of-wedlock births were higher. I mean, you just keep, you can go and keep going and going and going on a lot of these metrics. And what was interesting to me is, uh, yeah, they had pushback to me on uh, against, you know, on various doctrinal issues, say about Section 230 or whatever. But it was pretty clear that they hadn't really thought through their own idea of what the law should be. But there was just extreme pushback against the notion that everything was a nightmare uh, or extreme pushback against my argument against everything being a nightmare. And then extreme pushback against my argument that there's anything at all uh, in po- that, that the conservative movement had accomplished in a po- positive sense in the last 25, 30 years. And that's, and I, I really think, Sarah, that what we're what we heard was a symptom of a a lesson that is being taught to a lot of young people on the right right now is that it, everything is horrible. How could they not take Every- that message if you're watching cable news or right. listening to the you know this election is the most important of our lifetime type rhetoric in the run up to 2020? Yeah, Nate agrees. Nate is he's over it. <laughs> He is over it. These establishment conservatives are just, they don't have any answers for Nate. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, one of the things I tried to do is introduce some historical perspective. Um, You know, even a lot of the political correctness that we face today on campus, there have been waves of it in the, in the past. Um, And, you know, one of the things I tried to remind people of was a lot of these things swing one way and then swing another way. But, the honest reality of it, Sarah, is I think that when you're talking about a lot of their worldview, a lot of their government, the, the only way you can justify a lot of those governmental actions that they advance, such as essentially gutting much of the First Amendment um, in, the, in the interest of making sure that they have online voices to the extent that they want them, is all justified by this sense of emergency, this sense of crisis. And I do think that is a, a, a that is an a real and truly important issue for the right going forward is how much of the media is going to keep constantly pounding home this notion that everything is an emergency all the time. Okay, I have a series of questions for you. One, uh, higher or lower on Clubhouse as an app? Um, a little lower, a little lower. Yeah. Explain. Uh, on the one hand, that was a really kind of cool experience. Um, and I enjoyed it. On the other hand, it was a time investment. (laughs) Yeah. How long? I mean, three hours, three hours, three hours. And And the conversation was rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not many times when I'm going to really have an opportunity to sort of sit down and just sort of like field questions. Um, So yeah, it was cool that you could do it. But as far as sort of like this, 
day-to-day engagement for an app to really take off, I don't know. I could, I can imagine a sort of a shiny new toy aspect of it where you're like, cool. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to do this again tomorrow and next week. No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is it in that sense, it could replace like Reddit AMAs. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't do Reddit AMAs every week. No, no. I mean, I, I think it has its place in the, in the ecosystem. No question about it. Um, but I do think there's a sort of a shiny new toy aspect of it. Cause the other thing then is if you're, if you're somebody who, um, has a public platform, one of the first things that you're going to want to wonder, wonder about is, wait a minute, why am I spending a whole bunch of time on clubhouse, um, for free? (laughs) Uh, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Second question, and I really think this is what's on everyone's mind. How did you keep your cool, your patience? You stayed for three hours. You told me you thought it was fun. Yeah. You had a good time. What in you, what allows you to tick that way if you could break it down for the rest of us who could not have done that with such a plum? Well, you know, I'm a former teacher. I taught at Cornell Law School. Uh, as soon as I sort of realized what the room was, was a giant pile of students, mainly. Um, I, then, and then all of a sudden, your mind clicks into a different mode. And you realize, wait a minute, you know, I'm dealing with, um, basically, I took it like, hey, this is like a dorm room bull session, you know, where you've got but a bunch of- they were attacking you personally, and you just never seemed flustered or aggrieved. <laughs> Yeah, I've developed a pretty thick skin about that stuff, but I took this as an opportunity because as soon as I knew that an awful lot of people were tuning in that were not yelling at me, um, that some of these people were having the first opportunity to actually hear from me as opposed to hearing a caricature of me. And so if that's the first opportunity to hear from me, as opposed to sort of like this caricature, then, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take that. I'll take that. Okay. Last question on this topic. Let's actually talk about that conversation you were having with the HLS 2L. He had this point about the first amendment and he was citing this case where the Supreme Court held that a shopping mall had to allow political speech, all political speech, all speech of any kind. And he was saying that could be applied to big tech, to Facebook, to Twitter, et cetera, and that they were more like the shopping mall. And he was asking you why you didn't think that Supreme Court case should apply to those platforms. Yeah, so this was this is a uh, a really kind of obscure Supreme Court case that was basically saying under California law, um, California law uh, could California law require shopping malls to be open to political expression, and this is a case from several decades ago, and the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, under. It's not inconsistent with the Constitution for California to allow these sort of a, a, a private area like a shopping mall to be open for certain kinds of public communication. And it's a decision that 
a lot of people have talked about in the context of big tech censorship um, that I think has real limits if you're talking about any sort of application to, say, Facebook or to Twitter or to uh, any other, you know, other platforms, Reddit, I mean, you name it online. And one, I think, one, I think just as a practical matter, Sarah, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I don't think that case comes out the same way in the current court. Uh, I, I, I don't think the, the current court would say that a uh, shopping mall could be open or should be open to uh, private speech or must be open to private speech under the law. No, you called uh, it a zombie current, precedent, which I think made a lot yeah. of sense. I, I think just even look at the Boy Scout associational case. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. way more on point with where the direction of the court was going and is going yeah. compared to that case. And the other thing that I think is different about sort of Facebook and Twitter is unlike a shopping mall, Facebook and Twitter are expressive platforms all by themselves who have their own sort of moderation. Um, they have their own moderation policies, their own sort of goals and expressive idea. They have their own expressive goals for the website, like what they want it to be, what they want it to look like, which is different from a shopping mall. And so I think that that means that even if that precedent is still viable, which I don't really think that it is. Um, Facebook and Twitter are different from that. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, that that case was a, it's a zombie precedent. I think it's basically confined to its facts. It basically doesn't exist as a viable case going forward and is also distinguishable. And then the other thing was the yelling about blasphemy. blasphemy. Yeah, that was fun. That was kind of hilarious, actually. Um, and this sort of goes back to what, uh, um, you know, there's this sort of school of thought that basically says whatever um, any, you know, state did or whatever early Congresses did regarding free speech is what the First Amendment means. Um, as if sort of early states or early Congresses were infallible in essentially the infallible final authorities on the meaning of the Constitution, when you and I both know that as soon as some of these early entities got in power, they got busy violating the Constitution. Um, yeah, and interestingly, his point was that that's proof of what the First Amendment means, the original understanding right. of the First Amendment. And your point was, nah, dog. <laughs> nah, dog. I invoked the nah, dog doctrine. I, I did. And again, part of this was the dorm room bull session aspect of it, because you and I both know that a blasphemy law would lose nine zero. Um, it, it, there would be not any hint of support for a blasphemy law. They wouldn't in take the court. it. It wouldn't. They get, wouldn't. It, you would lose at the trial court. You would lose at the appellate court, and the Supreme Court wouldn't take it because there's no need to. Yeah. Now trivia. Trivia uh, fact here, Sarah, I actually, in my litigation career, had a blasphemy case. What? Yeah. Yeah. So this is an actual set of facts that occurred in the United States of America at a public university in California. Um, Republicans, college Republicans, held an um, anti-terror event. This is sometime relatively... Uh, you know, a few years after 9-11, a few years after the invasion of Iraq. And what they did is 
they stomped on the flag of Hamas, okay? They stomped on the Hamas flag. Well, the Hamas flag has, I believe it was Hamas, yes. I think, yeah, Hamas. And the Hamas flag has the name of Allah on it written in Arabic. And a number of students grew almost violently angry that the college Republicans were stomping on the name of Allah. And so the college, college Republicans were brought up on charges for stomping on the flag. And one of the charges was desecrating the name of Allah. That was an actual part of the case, was desecrating the name of Allah, which is a blasphemy um, prohibition. And so we launched a lawsuit. This was, I was at ADF. We launched a lawsuit. This was 2006 and won it post haste, Sarah, won it with extreme speed and actually got uh, the entire California State University system speech policies changed as a result of it. I'm, I'm confused. You're telling me that in the California speech policy, there was something that said you couldn't blaspheme Allah? No, there was a, it was one of these classic speech codes that bans offensive speech and the Uh (laughs) offense and what was offensive about the speech was Was that it was blasphemous. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So what, what does, what does Nate think about blasphemy? Does he have thoughts? (laughs) Uh, You know, it'll, I'm hoping that he does not join a chat room in 22 years called David French based or cringe. That's if I honestly, if I can raise him to not do stuff like that, I think that'll kind of be a win. Um, all right. HR one. No, no, yes. wait, you had thoughts on nominal damages because you missed our podcast on Monday, I, but you can have a host privilege here and tell us your thoughts. But I also want to know, cause we got this question from a listener um, if Kagan did write a concurring opinion in that case, i.e., how, why, what is in it for someone of a liberal ideology in nominal damages? What are the left-wing cases that can now move forward, I guess? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because um, <laughs> you might actually see some speech cases coming from the left Re, uh, that uh, that where this doctrine would apply in response to some new legislation that's starting to crop up in conservative state legislator legislatures. For example, um, conservative legislatures are they're they're beginning to enact things like what you might call anti woke legislation um, that is limiting the amount that people can teach. Uh, often poorly defined versions of critical race theory at the second primary and secondary education level often also restricting in some of these statutes, restricting teaching even at the public university level um, where restrictions on curriculum are much more constitutionally problematic. So um, there are quite a few, you know, one of the things that I think is uh, just a, a misnomer is that this, the idea that, the, that legal censorship or, or unlawful censorship is and it's somehow, somehow exclusively a left-wing phenomenon in the United States or exclusively a left-wing phenomenon in higher education. So you may begin to see some challenges, for example, to restrictions on um, restrictions on critical race theory, instructions on critical race theory, challenges on restrictions placed on uh, inst- uh, instruction around the 1619 Project. You'll see 
And then there's a uh, move in state legislatures to restrict uh, or limit the activities of the BDS movement, the boycott, boycott, divest, sanction movement. So in those circumstances, those are all the kinds of restrictions that this kind of nominal damages case would apply to. Because what is the financial cost to you of not being able to teach a um, critical race theory? What's the financial cost to you of not being able to use 1619 curriculum? And that's where this sort of nominal damages type construct comes into play. Um, I would also just say on the Kagan question, Kagan is pro First Amendment all on its own, not for any ideological outcome. But, you know, if you look back at some of her other cases, this did not surprise me one bit that she joined. I do wish she had written a concurring opinion, but I don't think it actually would have been uh, all that different looking. Yeah. I mean, you can go back and you can look at First Amendment cases. You can look at religious liberty cases. And when you see, say, a 7-2, uh, or you can be pretty darn sure that Kagan is part of that 7. For sure. Pretty darn sure. And that actually goes to a question that we've, you know, that we need to give more conversation to or, or more time to is how much is it really the, the case that, for example, the more the Democratic nominees are are they more lockstep than the Republican nominees on culture war type cases? And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we need to give that a more full treatment at some other point. But one of the areas that I think that you've seen consistently is that both Kagan and Breyer on some of these First Amendment cases, particularly these uh, religious liberty cases, will break and did break with Sotomayor and did break with Justice Ginsburg when Justice Ginsburg was alive. Um, I do think there was just a lot less anger or outrage from the left when that occurred than when the right, when you see justices on the right break. But one quick thing on nominal damages um, before I go, I, two things I wanted to say. One, the fact that this was 8-1 I think is an important illustration of the extent to which there is a pro-First Amendment consensus on the court. In other words, that the First Amendment is not hanging by a thread in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, there is disagreement on its limits, its edges, but sort of this core First Amendment, uh, a a core commitment to First Amendment principles, there is a widespread consensus. And the second thing is, I just wanted to emphasize to sort of deal with this advisory opinions critique that um, Justice Roberts had. You know, and I thought Thomas was very effective in this is that, um, look, it's not you had to allege the other elements of standing as well, not just the existence of the, you know, sort of the, the mythical dollar of damages. There had to be a concrete violation of your civil liberties alleged and proven and which is different from uh, the sort of the classic. Uh, advisory opinion sort of construct, which is often um, a seeking a sort of a a, a pre enforcement sort of um, ruling on on a you know on a legal doctrine. But when there has been enforcement, there has been injury, and when there has been injury, even if it's difficult to quantify, you're outside of the advisory opinions construct, not podcast legal doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is in need of clarification. All right, on to HR1? Yes, indeed. 
Um, when somebody asks me, I, I'm very curious about your answer to this question. Because when somebody asks me, what do you think of HR1? One of the first things I have to say is, which part of this bill, because it is absolutely massive. <laughs> well, it reads like about one quarter of the Democratic platform from the last convention. They just put it into legislative form, which actually, I don't know why more political parties don't do that when they're in control of the House. Right. I mean, if they and if they had conclusive control of the Senate, I mean, it's in a pretty darn efficient way, I suppose, of enacting an agenda. But like you um, tell people this is what your platform is and then you never even put it into legislation. I don't know why more voters aren't angry about that. And and in that sense, uh, H.R. 1 should be the norm, not the exception. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, H.R. 1 has so many different aspects to it. Um, but I want to pull out a few and talk about why I have a constitutional issue with it. Um, so I, I think that if you're going to let, let me let me sort of um, uh, talk about a couple of elements. So one is there's a section of the bill that is called stopping super PAC candidate coordination that is trying to. Well, let's see. How do you praise it? Stop super PAC candidate coordination. No, it's it's trying to limit the scope, uh, the the ability of um, outside entity outside entities that are not receiving cam direct campaign contributions in the way that candidates do from working with or coordinating with or contacting candidates in messaging in the run up to a uh, to a um, political campaign. And the problem with this is that political speech, and this is something if you listen to the is David French based or cringe uh, clubhouse, what it ultimately ends up doing is placing great limits on political speech of private individuals who do not belong to campaigns um, gr much greater than the Constitution allows. Um, where it seems like the goal is to limit a lot of the discussion of candidates to the candidates and parties themselves. In other words, who's really going to be speaking about candidates? Candidates. Who's really going to be speaking about parties? Parties. Um, whereas the public at large, especially in sort of any sort of organized way, would find themselves dramatically limited. Um, and so that your ability to promote, attack, support, or oppose, for example, any given candidate would be um, would open you up to a lot of government uh, investigation, uh, a lot of government scrutiny. And I think that that's it's it's extraordinarily overbroad under existing precedent and would likely be struck down almost immediately. So that that's that's problem number one. Um, problem number two is that the bill contains a version of what's called the Disclose Act. This is a an act that would require uh, organizations that make campaign-related disbursements to disclose, for example, names and address of any beneficial owner. Um, it would require disclosure of donors, for example. Um, this is actually an issue that's before the Supreme Court of the United States right now. There has been a case taken 
um, uh, a, a case accepted, cert granted uh, on a California sort of version of this. And it's highly likely the Supreme Court is going to reject the California law. And so, and why is that? Because it runs afoul of a case called NAACP versus Patterson. This is a 1958 decision that blocked the state of Alabama from requiring the NAACP to produce its membership list as a precondition to conducting activities in the state. Uh, and so that is, that is a, this is a long held, uh, a, a longstanding protection for anonymous speech. So I'm filibustering, Sarah, any, any uh, uh, dissents, observations on these elements? You're filibustering because I'm doing bicep curls with a nine-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he likes them. And he's cute. He's cute. Um, I think that, yes, there are portions of it that would be struck down. I don't know that those portions of it would ever make it through to a final law. As you said, this thing is such a monster. It would be very unlikely to get through in its current form. More likely it would be broken up into its three component parts. The voting yeah. part, the ethics part, and the campaign finance part. The campaign finance part, the part that you're really talking about here, is the part that probably would have the best chance of getting passed uh, and then struck down. <laughs> yeah. Very promptly struck down. Now, here, I'm very curious about your position on this. So one of the things that HR1 does is it revamps the Federal Election Commission. So um, FE, there are six commissioners. There's supposed to be six commissioners in the FEC. Um, haven't had six commissioners for a while. Uh, so, but the, there's supposed to be six commissioners. You're supposed to be, you can only uh, uh, act, the FEC can only act if you get four out at, a, at least four votes from the six commissioners. And what HR1 would do would shrink the commission to five members appointed by the president no more than two can be of the same party, but then the FEC can act on majority vote alone. So the FEC can act empowered only by the president's, the president's appointments over the unanimous objections from members of the opposing party. So what this means is that the FEC would suddenly become much more responsive to the president and the agenda of the president of the United States. And it's very interesting to me because this is, this is a proposal um, that's been knocked around for a while. I wrote about it back in February of 2019. And it's very interesting that this proposal remains after the Trump effort to um, overturn the election results. Because one of the fascinating aspects of this is if you're revamping the FEC, and you're making the president um, much in the, in enhancing the president's role in, in selecting the members of the FEC that can actually take action. Um, it, does that, doesn't that raise red flags in, in the current environment? And did one of the, isn't one of the things that we learned in the effort in, in stopping Trump's effort to overturn the election? that it was in fact a quite effective safeguard that states were running their own elections much more than the federal government was running the election. And I, 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 just, I just found it interesting how much HR1 federalizes 
Uh, and I would see it as making the electoral system much more vulnerable to presidential interference um, than I think the Trump experience suggests is prudent. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I think that's an interesting point. I think of the FEC from sort of my own campaign experience where it, the FEC shouldn't exist, except perhaps <laughs> where it is most helpful to me, which is when they put out <laughs> advisory opinions. So you can send the FEC a question. It's basically a safe harbor if the FEC says, we deem that not to be a violation of the law. Uh, fine. I think that can serve a helpful purpose when you're talking about uh, elections where we don't want everyone to have to hire big law firms and spend, you know, a thousand dollars in six minute increments simply to know what the law is. But the idea that the FEC has actual quasi judicial authority has always been wildly problematic when you're talking about something as partisan as, well, elections. So the idea that you want to make it more partisan is crazy town. Yeah, exactly. More partisan and more and and able to act more quickly. Um, gosh, I mean, can you imagine what a President Trump could have accomplished with an FEC as responsive to him as, for example, his many of his political appointees were um, throughout his presidency? Um, I think that's dangerous. Um, it, it seems to me that one of the strengths of our system that was exposed while there was, you know, uh, a degree, uh, uh, you know, an exaggerated degree, <laughs> but a degree of um, confusion regarding voting during the 2020 election, the ability of states to run their own elections was an indispensable firewall. Um when you had the ability, when you had a, a Georgia Secretary of State who has the ability to say, no, Mr. President, you don't have authority over me. You don't have authority over this election in Georgia. I mean, that was a firewall against a tremendous amount of upheaval and mischief. Okay, David, I'm going to hand off the brisket. <laughs> Outstanding. Oh, well, I'll miss him. I'll miss him. I, yeah, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is challenging to do while doing a full workout and the workout is in the form of a baby. I would say that was like three things I was trying to do at once. So, all right, let's focus back in. I want to circle back on something you were saying earlier, actually, no surprise. Um, I did not get to, to, <laughs> to highlight it. You were talking about the 1619 project and anti-woke laws. Uh, will you spend a little more time on that? Where yeah. is that popping up and why you think those will get struck down eventually? Some of them may, some yes, some no. So um, what's happening is uh, across the country, you're seeing um, a number of bills popping up where they're essentially, what, what the intent of the bill is, is they're trying to ban, for example, teaching of critical race theory. Um, they're trying to, prevent the teaching of the 1619 project they're they're trying to do um and and we'll put it in in the show notes this this great article by Jeffrey Sachs a, a professor at Arcadia University it's called the new war on woke and what it's trying and essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to um define what 
critical race theory is and then ban it. Um, so, for example, in Arkansas, they're debating a bill that would prevent public schools and universities from offering any course, class, event, or activity that, quote, promotes division between resentment of or social justice for a race, gender, political affiliation, or social class. Um, that's a case that, I mean, that's a bill that, uh, especially if you're talking about um, higher education, would be struck down post-haste. Um, but it it really is an interesting, uh, allows us to do something kind of interesting, Sarah, that we haven't really done. And that's talk about what is academic freedom and what are the free speech rights of teachers and professors? Yeah, and, and I can't the, believe we haven't really talked about that. I know. That. And at the, uh, you know, public universities, private universities, we'll have to dive into that. But also mm -hmm. when you're talking about your uh, K through 12, there's also a lot of local control. I mean, you have school boards, mm -hmm. um, you know, different states do it different ways in terms of funding. But I see those two intention here. If a local right. school board wants to adopt a text or not adopt a text, and then there's a state law they're running into, I, I want to talk about that as well. Right. Uh, I mean, my gosh, the regulations of state curriculum and, and local curriculum, I mean, what a labyrinth. Uh, what a labyrinth. And it's just different state by state. But here's a good way of, of thinking about it. Um, as a general matter, states, legislatures, and have an enormous amount of power over K through 12 curriculum. Just enormous. This is one of the reasons why the textbook battles are so intense in the United States. It's, um, uh, I, I'd have to look it up. I'll try to look it up for the show, no show notes, but a fascinating study of the difference, for example, between history textbooks in Texas and California and the different ways in which they portray the United States of America. So in, in state and local government, state and local governments have a very top down powerful influence over curriculum in public schools K through 12. And so this sort of idea that any given uh, teacher in a K through 12 school has the ability to teach their own curriculum is largely a fiction. It's largely a fiction. And, and there's actually a case that is... Not one, I got to say, Sarah, not one of my favorite First Amendment cases. It's called Garcetti versus Sabalas. And in Garcetti versus Sabalas, the question was, what kind of free speech rights do public employees have when they're engaged in on-the-job speech? In other words, they're speaking as a, in their capacity as a public employee. And the answer to that question, what the Supreme Court said is, nada. Not really. How would you have set not, that rule otherwise? Especially when we're talking about teachers. Well, see, that's where, so what, what the Supreme Court did is it did, it said nada. However, we're not saying nada on when it comes to teaching or scholarship. Okay. So it, what it said is, because the case dealt with a LA, the Los Angeles district attorney's office, 
But if you're going to draw a very broad rule that says a public employee does not enjoy free speech rights when they're speaking as a public employee, guess who are public employees? A history professor, an art, a, a literature professor, a political science professor at a public university. They're public employees, and they stand in a very different position than, say, a DA delivering remarks at, at a press conference, for example. And so what, what the Supreme Court did was essentially say, okay, when you're engaged in um, speech, on-the-job speech, no protection, but we're not extending our ruling to teaching and scholarship. We're just sort of tabling that issue. Not that we're saying that there's an exception for teaching and scholarship. We're just not ruling on that one way or the other. And what resulted, what happened as a result of that is a lot of litigation, <laughs> as you might imagine, a lot of litigation. And here's how it's kind of sort of shaken out. If you're a K through 12 teacher, you're out of luck. If you're a K through 12 teacher and you're teaching kids and you try to depart from the curriculum, and uh, you're going to inject a bunch of your opinion into the classroom and a principal doesn't like it, um, you're not going to have a First Amendment defense there. You might have a defense regarding union rules and tenure rules and things like that, but First Amendment, no. University professors, different situation. In fact, that was one of my last big cases before I hung up my litigation spurs as I went to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on a Garcetti case involving a university professor and secured a victory, thankfully, uh, for academic freedom uh, on behalf of a conservative professor and uh, essentially got a carve out from the Garcetti holding. And so that's the environment that we're in. And I think what that as a practical matter means, this anti-woke legislation has a lot better chance of surviving in the K through 12 context and a not great chance of surviving in the higher education context. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay, David, um, have you heard of something called a bottle episode? I have yeah, heard so, of a bottle episode. Um, bottle episodes are used in television sitcoms in general, but uh, the the TV series Community sort of made fun of itself by doing a bottle episode that it kept referring to itself as a bottle episode. I'll just give you the Wikipedia definition. A bottle episode is produced cheaply and restricted in scope to use as few non-regular cast members' effects and sets as possible. Bottle episodes are usually shot on set built for other episodes, frequently the main interior set for the series, and consists largely of dialogue and scenes for which no special preparations are needed. They are commonly used when one script has fallen through and another has to be written on short notice or because of budgetary constraints. <laughs> David, uh, this is our bottle episode. We get one. <laughs> Listeners, for those who are big fans of advisory opinions, uh, we hope you enjoyed this bottle episode. For those of you who this is your first advisory opinions, um, this is a bottle episode. Do not, <laughs> please, please watch another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> every now and then, you know, every now and then uh you you get a you get a mulligan. That's right. I mean, honestly. But I still think we've had some good content here. Um and speaking of content, 
I just want to go through some of these some of these laws, okay, um, and some of the, the the provisions of these laws, and just show how poorly drafted um, this these things are. Um, South Dakota wants to bar schools from using any content that quote quote associated with efforts to reframe this country's history in a way that promotes racial divisiveness and displaces historical understanding with ideology. That's clear, Sarah. I have no idea what you can teach or what you cannot teach based on that guidance. <laughs> it's it's isn't really... all of history perhaps a foul of that as a general matter? Yeah. Um, some of these, one of the bills I, I like is that it's designed to replace faux academic political activists with real academic thinkers. Hmm. Um, that's the intention of the bill. And, uh, and part of that is they're designed to identify political, to, uh, target professors to identify their political affiliations. Oh no. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the things I think that, you know, is just absolutely toxic about our present moment is the, the polarization that we have and the, the anger directed at, for example, say critical race theory or specific things that have become viral online, like the 1619 Project. Because politicians are being put in a position where they're being asked consistently by um, constituents, what are you going to do about critical race theory? What are you going to do about wokeness? What are you going to do about cancel culture? And a lot of these issues that make people so upset are quite frankly, not outside of the sphere of, of governmental, of meaningful governmental influence. But that doesn't mean that people aren't trying, that people aren't trying to inject the government into um, discussions, you know, into these ideological debates and have the government put its thumb on one side or the other in a very, very concrete way, in a very punitive way. And believe you me, this is not something that is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that those on the right who are worried about cancel culture want to should in over the long term uh it, it is not in their long term interest shall we say to get the government in the business of regulating which ideologies can be taught this is true of uh, things like hr1 and the republican response to it uh the whole theory of adrian vermule's good common good cons constitutionalism. I don't understand why people think that our current situation is static, that all political affiliations are static, that all history is somehow static. It's just going to stay exactly where it is right now. So the only legislation you need to worry about is for the current moment. Nothing in the future could possibly change that would, for instance, backfire on what you're trying to do right now. I find it to be odd. Uh, and by the way, when I brought up uh, Adrian Vermeule's common good constitutionalism with someone, a friend David over drinks, um, he said, I thought that was just a troll. I thought he was being sarcastic. So if you remember back to that episode, yeah. um, I'm not the only one who thinks that perhaps the whole thing is a giant troll. 
Yeah, I I don't think it's let let me put it this way. He has an entire following that des that definitely does not believe it's a troll. Oh, that I agree with. Yep, for sure. <laughs> I think some of them, uh, nay, all of them, uh, were on Clubhouse last night in busted or large. <laughs> a large number of them were. But this idea and that like can... your blasphemy, like the idea that if you make a law right now that says uh, that criminalizes blasphemy, that that will only ever work in your favor, never against you. What? Yeah. Like, even in this exact moment, they could, they, meaning your opponents, could label all sorts of things blasphemy that you don't think are blasphemy because you're not in power right now, HLS2L. Wah! Uh, very, very strange. And to your, you know, to, to hearken back to our first conversation here, the very idea that you want to force these platforms to host content and speech. Um, it's, it's weird. It's weird that Republicans think the same people will be voting for them so that making it harder to vote will always work to their benefit. I just, I, I don't know. It, literally everything we talk about on this podcast, I think could be summed up by, by that as one of my chief reactions. The world changes, swing states change. My students are always shocked when I point out that California was a swing state in my lifetime. Texas was a swing mm -hmm. state in my lifetime. Georgia is a swing state and in their lifetime. And might be again. Like th these things that you have been taught as, as um, static, they're just not, nothing is static. So do not, do not have a philosophy, political, personal, or anything else that cannot take into account changes. Whether you're in the majority, the minority, that's why we protect minority rights in this country. One of the reasons. Well, you know, one, and, and it's, it might be a great to end where we began with some of the themes that in that uh, David French-based or cringe <laughs> uh, clubhouse, which was, you know, look, one of the points I was trying to get across to these, and, and again, it was the vast majority were obviously students. You... It is a simple fact. It is a simple fact that you're enjoying more access to the public square and greater ability to speak right now at this point in human history than any other point in human history. I mean, any other point, you have more ability for people in the public to hear your voice than ever before. And yet what's happening is at that same time that you have more ability to speak than ever before, there's this sense of incredible panic that you could see that was like palpable in the room that because, and I couldn't believe this, that I, and you might've missed this, Sarah, but I kept being asked, what about Laura Loomer? <laughs> and Laura Loomer is a white nationalist, super fringe troll who has been deplatformed, kind of like uh, she's the most, she's been deplatformed from basically every online platform you can imagine. Not all of them, but uh, most of them. And they're like, what about Laura Loomer, which is this 2021's version of what about Milo Yiannopoulos when he was, you know, deplatformed in, say, 2017, 2018. And I kept saying to them, is it really your position that the power of the federal government should be exerted against your fellow citizens? Because that's what these employees are of these uh, entities, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, you name it. They're your fellow citizens. To, a, to mandate that their talent and their time must be dedicated to giving a white, to be coerced, 
by the power of the state into giving a white nationalist a platform. Is that really your position? And then how is that consistent in any way, shape, or form with your position that the power of the state should not be used to coerce, for example, a Jack Phillips into designing and baking a cake for a same-sex wedding? And the only answer they sort of came back was, well, well, tech is big. Tech is big. Good, good. <laughs> tech is big. And, and, but the underlying principle here is incredibly important. This all idea of sort of platform access as a civil right. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the one other thing, and, and I'll leave, I'll leave this discussion, uh, is that there was this burning sense of conviction of two things at the same time. One, we're in retreat everywhere. That's where I started. It's decline, it's defeat, it's retreat everywhere, which is counterfactual. <laughs> that is, there, there are areas in which the social conservative view is in retreat. There are areas which, in which it's in advance, but we're in retreat everywhere. We're in a defensive crouch. And therefore, Sarah, we need to seize the government indefinitely and use its awesome power to our benefit. I don't know how those two beliefs are remotely compatible. And certainly will come back to bite them as it has throughout history. All right, David, I feel like the bottle episode might have redeemed itself there at the end. <laughs> hey, look, there were some diamonds in this rough. A lot of rough. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, Sarah, I have to say I admire you because uh, talk to Nancy, talk to anybody who knows me. I cannot multitask. Like it is, it is literally impossible. If I was, if, if Lila was in the room, my granddaughter, and she was demanding my attention, not only would I be unable to engage with you, my ears literally would not hear the words you were saying. <laughs> but you were able to do two things at once. It was amazing. It's very strange. I actually have trouble listening. This is why I, I don't do well in school. I have trouble listening to podcasts, for instance, unless I am also driving or do like doing dishes or something else. If I just try to sit and listen, my brain moves on somewhere else. So actually doing the bicep curls helps me listen to you. It focuses my auditory learning. Very strange. I don't know why. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I was impressed. Thank you. I was impressed. Thank you. So um, if listeners, if you're going to rate this episode, rate it on Sarah's ability to multitask because that's, that's the full five stars. Sarah's childcare, based or cringe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll join that clubhouse. I'll join that clubhouse. I do think it's interesting that, that, that none of the ally, that there were allies I had in that room listening in and none of them were granted permission to speak, but. Um, is it weird? Anyway, is it? <laughs> it is not. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for letting us take a, a bit of a mulligan today. And as always, please check out thedispatch.com. Subscribe to Sarah's outstanding newsletter, The Sweep, uh, which talks about HR1. Uh, had out some great content from Chris Starwalt uh, earlier this week. And go to Apple Podcasts and rate us and subscribe. And we will be back on Monday. <laughs>